0: For those of you who are visiting, we're so thankful uh, that you are here. My name is Thad Yessa. I am one of the pastors here, and it is my joy to open God's word with you today. You can be turning in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, is where we'll spend our time this morning. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. They are uh, available at the info bar out these double doors to the right you're more than welcome to stop there uh, after the service and we'll give you one of those as a small gift just say hey we would love for you to be able to have a bible and if you're a visitor we'd love for you to fill out that connection card that's in your bulletin and drop that off at the info bar so we can say thank you give you a cool water bottle just as a appreciation uh, for your time with us this morning as I said, this is not the Sunday we had planned. We had planned that Pastor Will would be here and he would start our new series of walking through the book of Acts, but the Lord had something else in mind. But you may have noticed on your way in this morning, there's a table set out with a whole bunch of scripture journals full for the book of Acts, and those are free. Feel free to grab one after the service and use that throughout our next sermon series. It has on one page... All the verses in Acts and on the next page is a place where you can take notes for your studying and helping you as we walk through the book of Acts as a church. Some say that there are only uh, two things that can be guaranteed in life and that is death and taxes. You might be thinking why are you talking about death and taxes we just started this new year and simply put because i had a professor in college who added something else to that he said there are three things that i know he said birds fly fish swim and christians grow now you might argue that not all birds fly and that's okay for my love for professor will say it. it works out that birds fly Fish swim, and Christians grow that. In fact, as a part of the Christian life, growth is part of it. Growth is a natural thing, that when you have a baby, if it's getting all the proper nutrients, if it's healthy, it will slowly start to grow. Taller, stronger mental capacity, that growth is a natural aspect of life. Growth should also be a natural aspect of the Christian life that the more we go on in this life, we should look more like Jesus. And that's where our attention is drawn in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll ask that you stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. We'll read all 11 verses as we begin our time this morning, and then I will pray for us. The scriptures say, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, there are many things this morning that could cause distraction for us. Perhaps it is loved ones who are sick, worries about what this new year will bring, sin in our life. Father, we pray that you would remove these distractions. That this morning we would focus on the truths of your word and be shaped and changed by them. That all of our worries and fears will be squelched by the good news of the gospel. That perhaps this morning we are weary and tired. Let us be refreshed with the good news of the scriptures that you have loved us and you have sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be changed into the likeness of Christ. We ask for the Spirit's help this morning, that he would give us understanding of what the text means and how it is we are to apply it to our lives. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. You may all have... I see. The question that we need to ask this morning is, how do we know if we are a true disciple? And I think the first way that which we can do that is through knowing. We actually know, and you might be like, okay, well, what does that mean to know? And what I mean by that is more than just having intellectual knowledge. More than just knowing a bunch of facts, Like, there's some of you out here where I could list out a bunch of different jobs, the occupation that you have. I could name some of your children. I could say where you live, and I know facts about you. But it doesn't mean that I know you well. I just know a bunch of facts about you. Versus the way that I know my wife, that I know what I do makes her tick sometimes. That I know what her favorite snack is. That I know what her hopes and dreams are. That I know her in more than just an intellectual way. What Peter is telling us here is that we need to know God more than just facts about God. That if we want to go through this life as a follower of Jesus, facts will not merely cut it. That we can't just be content with knowing a bunch of facts about God or the scriptures, but that we actually have to experience a personal relationship with him. That it's actually really easy to think you know Jesus, but merely you just know about him. You could say that, yeah, I know he is the Son of God. I know that he is the second member of the Trinity, that he was a healer, that he walked on water, that he performed many miracles. But knowing all of those things won't bring about salvation. You actually have to turn to him and say, Jesus, you did something that I could not do. You offered your life up as a sacrifice for my sins, not your sins, but mine not because you deserve to die on the cross, but because I deserved to die to my sins. And because of that, I trust in you completely. Now, how do we gain this type of knowledge? How can we know Jesus in a more intimate way? I think there's two ways in which we can do this, and the first is through the gift of faith. We just celebrated Christmas and If you're anything like me, you love getting Christmas gifts or just gifts in general. It's always nice when someone comes and says, hey, I got this for you. It shows a certain care, a certain investment, a certain affection that someone might have towards you. And it's the same way with faith, that this faith is given to us not because we deserve it, nor is it given through our own merits or our own righteousness that God looked and said, man, Thad, you do so many good things, I want to give you this blessing of the gift of faith. But in fact, it is given merely and only through the loving kindness of our God who made this righteousness possible for us through his son, Jesus. By his righteousness, we can stand as his children in his presence where prior we could not come before god because he was a holy and perfect god who says i cannot be around sin because i am fully holy and fully perfect and your sin separates you from me but because of jesus's death on the cross we can come near to the god of the universe and we can lay bare our burdens needs desires and sinfulness and say god You are the God who saved me, and he welcomes us. You and I do not deserve this kind of mercy. He could have simply said, hey, I will offer you salvation and then release us, like prisoners who serve their time and say, okay, don't go and do more crime. But he doesn't treat us as released prisoners. He treats us as sons and daughters, That he welcomes us into his presence. That he says, instead of looking at your wicked deeds when I look at you, I see the righteousness of Christ. And he made us righteous through Christ's death that we might be brought near to him and one day we will spend eternity with him in heaven. And this is all a gift that he offers freely to us. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus is the Author and perfecter of our faith, that all faith within one who believes was authored by Jesus, or Philippians 1:29 says that it has been granted to us or given to us who believe in Jesus Christ, or Acts 3, verse 16 that says, All faith in Christ is faith that has come from and through Christ. So all faith originates in Christ. And he must grant this faith. And he grants it to those who have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the earth. As Second Peter 1 verse 1 says, faith must be given to us. Secondly, God grants it unto us. A saving knowledge of Jesus is a free gift that we don't deserve, that we can't imitate, that we can't replicate, that we cannot pre- for. That if I was to write you a check for one million dollars, you could take that check and you could go to the bank and they would probably just laugh at you and say there's not nearly enough money in the bank account to cover it. But the check that we're talking about, the check of faith and eternal life, is one that God promises. He says, I will give this to you but he also has the power to bring to completion. That what he says, what he promises in the scriptures, he has the power to bring to completion. That when we think about our salvation, that he doesn't ask us to pay for it because it's a bill we could never pay. And he says, I will cover it for you. That he grants it to us, that he gives it to us freely. That even though we can't pay for it, he says, hey, I want you to have this. This good gift is something that is better than you can even imagine. And what 2 Peter here is saying is that, hey, those who are true disciples, those are the ones that know God in this way. And I think that's why he starts it with Simeon or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, like, hey, me, this name that I have, Jesus came to earth, and when he called me to be his disciple, he gave me a new name. I'm telling you what it is, Simeon, Simon, Peter, and he says, because of what Jesus did, it made me a servant, an apostle, an apostle. So he's saying his credentials. He's saying where he is standing, that we think of Peter as one of the 12 disciples, one of the great fathers of Christianity, we could say. There's a reason the Catholic Church holds Peter up to such a high standard. And he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness. He says, hey, that gift, it brings all of us, regardless of background, regardless of age, regardless of wealth, regardless of education. He says, hey, that same faith that saved me can save you, and it makes us all the same. It makes us family. I think something interesting about this is what that tells us is that all faith, whether it's a small child or an old saint, is the same. And also that age doesn't bring about more sanctification, meaning just because you're older— doesn't mean you're more sanctified. It also means that just because you're young, doesn't mean you're mature in the faith. That it takes actual work to make this happen, which is, brings us to point number two, and it says that we grow. How do we know if we are true disciples? We grow. Disciples of Jesus are called to work and labor towards this. The youngest of us in the faith, to so the oldest of us in the faith, we are participants with God in adding to our faith. Now, to be clear, salvation is given only by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That what Peter is not saying is that, hey, you have to believe and then do this, 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 and this, and then you're saved. But we work in cooperation in God's operation, that God plans out our lives, our salvation, our faith from the beginning of time to the end of time, that he is the one who grants it to us. But we are to work out our own salvation to show that we've been changed by the gospel. There needs to be a change within our hearts. What he is not saying is to be better, do better, become better. But if you love Jesus, you should be able to look in the mirror and see how God has transformed your heart. To see that there is a difference in you. I think we should take great comfort in the fact that it says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which means that before he gives any command, God always gives the grace that comes before it. That we can take comfort that all the commands that we see in scriptures that may seem really hard to follow after, that God says, hey, I have given you everything that you need. Whatever you need to grow more in your sanctification, whatever it is you need to find peace, whatever it is you need to find comfort, God says, hey, I have given it to you. Everything that you need is found in Christ and in the gospel. Now, why does God give us these commands? I think he gives them to us because they enlighten our darkened hearts. That God's salvation of us includes teaching us what is right by giving us instructions and commands and remaking our hearts so that we love what is right. That when we are saved, it's not that there is this instant transformation and we are all completely perfect, living just like Jesus, but there is this work that happens in our heart that changes us, that we now desire things we didn't previously desire. That once we desire the things of the world, and now we desire the things of Christ. That once we didn't desire to read the Bible, now we desire to read the Bible. That once we weren't communicating with God, and now we're talking to God in prayer. That the commands of scriptures are meant to enlighten our darkened hearts. That It says, hey, you want to know what it looks like to live in light of what God has done in your hearts? Read the Bible. It'll tell you what God wants you to do. God's laws are not meant to suck the fun out of life, but they're meant to be like railroad tracks pointing us in the right direction. It says, hey, if you want to look more like Jesus, follow this path. It's pointing us in the direction to go. But train tracks are pointless without a train, and a train is pointless without tracks. That it's putting us in the right direction, but it's only through the spirits working in our hearts, causing us to follow and obey the commands of Scripture that we start making it down the track to start to be more like Jesus. Author Jerry Bridges puts it this way, God's love provides us with a motivation for obedience. While God's law provides the direction for the biblical expressions of love. That God's love should be our motivating factor to follow God's law. That we don't follow the God's law because we're like, man, if I don't do this, I'm going to be sent back to hell. Or if I don't do this, God is going to love me less. But our motivation, in fact, is because God has loved me so much, I want to be more like him. I want my life to be changed to look more like him. I think, secondly, God gives us these commands because they limit the damage of our sin. When we sin, we hurt God, we hurt others, we hurt ourselves. That the law that God gives us, these command of Scripture, is saying like, hey, if you want to live a life without pain or sorrow, like, don't give in to sin start following after these ways because these ways will protect you. Because sin is like a rock in a lake that when you throw it in, the ripples keep going out and you don't know how far it'll go or who all it will affect. But following the commands of God will limit the damage our sins can do to other people or ourselves. I think thirdly, The reason God gives us these commands to help us grow is disciplining ourselves to practice certain behaviors helps us develop a love for them. That by following these commands, we actually learn to love and cherish and follow after them. That the more we read the Bible, the less of a chore it becomes— That the more time we spend in prayer to God, the easier it comes to have longer conversations with him. And not just, thank you God for this food. That it becomes enjoyable. Over the weekend, my wife and I, we moved to a new house. And one of the guys who was helping me move, I was sharing with him uh, goals for the new year. And one that I've had on my New Year's resolutions list for 15 plus years is to run a half marathon. And I'm like, this is the year. And he goes, what stops you from doing it? I'm like, well, I hate running. I hate doing it. And he told me, he's like, well, you just got to do it. You just got to get up every day, start running a little bit, keep going, adding more to it. And he talked about this runner's high, this experience you get once you start doing it and it starts to become enjoyable, enjoyable. And it's the same thing with our spiritual disciplines that God gives us these commands so that they become enjoyable to us. That when we see God's commands and laws that we shouldn't be like, oh my goodness, I don't want to do this, but instead we get to do it. We get to have communion with God. We get to know what God wants us to know from his scriptures. We get to talk to God. That the more we follow in these footsteps of the commandments, the more we develop a love and natural rhythms for them. And as we think that since God has given us power for godliness, that we should strive to become more godly. That he says, hey, I've given you everything you need to do this. All power, divine power that pertains to life and godliness. You get that. That's a promise of God that, hey, I've given you everything you need to strive to be more like Jesus. He doesn't just throw us in the deep end and say, hey, you got to figure it out. Hey, you got to wade your way through. God equips us with everything that we need to look more like Jesus. Because faith isn't just this impractical thing. Faith is actually very practical. This list that we're going to work through isn't just a nice list of platitudes. This list is distinctly Christian. This list tells us what Jesus is like. And it says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. He says, because you've been saved by the gospel, these are the things you should start working, desiring to strive after doing. And he says, add to your faith that has been given from God to you. He says, add to that virtue. He says, add to it virtue. He says, add to that knowledge. He says, hey, you should know these things. Know what the scriptures say. Know what it tells you. Know how it wants you to live. That faith to virtue that Christians of all people should be exceptionally good, morally excellent, kind. Not because we feel obligated, but because we're motivated by the fact that God is like this. And so we pursue after. We say, hey, my faith should cause this change, that I should be a good person. And to our virtue knowledge, the Christian faith requires us to learn in order to grow. That's why God gave us this kind of roadmap, instruction manual. He says, hey, you want to know what I'm like? Read the word. Because if all eternity hangs on God and all is about him, why would we not want to make every effort to discover more and more about him? We do that through the word through hearing it preached on Sundays, through reading the Bibles with our family or our life group or our discipleship group, through sitting in Sunday school classes that we cannot get enough of the word because we want to know God more. It's kind of like a balloon that as it grows larger and larger with more air, its capacity increases. Just as we grow in our knowledge of God, our capacity Grows more to love and appreciate Him. That the more we read the Scriptures, the more we should be changed by it. And we don't, we don't read the Scriptures so that when we go to our life groups that we're like, "Oh, I'm, I know the answer to everyone's toughest questions," or that I know more than anyone else does about the Bible. Because a proper theology knowledge about God should result in doxology meaning worship, that our knowledge of the scriptures and God should cause about a change in our hearts that causes us to reflect Christ and not be arrogant or proud. I've been working on a seminary degree for the last several years, and one thing that happened throughout that time is I became very prideful. I knew all sorts of random theology, facts, different church historians, all these things. I thought I knew all the answers to the words of God and the questions people might have about them that it brought about an arrogance, which is the exact opposite of what reading the Bible should do. Reading the Bible should cause us to be nothing but humble because we think that God saved us as terrible, sinful scoundrels and made us into saints, not because we did anything, but because he did everything. And I became confronted with this, when one of my seminary professors, I had to make a journal of how God was shaping and changing me through the reading of his word and the meditation on scriptures. And it was like, man, I'm, real, I'm reading the Bible for school, for a job, and yet I'm coming out more prideful. It was a very humbling experience. That we need to make sure that our knowledge about God causes a change within our hearts. Because if we simply just read the scriptures and aren't changed by them, why are we doing it? But to our knowledge, we add self-control. That we have moderation of good things. That we can look in our lives and we see all the good gifts that God has given us. Perhaps it's a family or your job or a car or the ability to sing or play musical instruments, that God gives us all of these good gifts. But someone who lacks self-control loves the good gifts versus the one who gave us the gifts. That someone who is growing in their faith loves God, even if he took away all the good gifts that he gave us. We can think of the story of Job in the Old Testament, how Job had all these things, wealth, a large family, many animals, large farm. Satan comes and says, hey God, the only reason Job loves you is because he has all these things. God says, okay, you can take all those things away. And as we read towards the end of the book, like Job remained faithful that even once all those things were taken away, he still trusted God at the end, and then God gave him all these blessings. We need to ask ourselves if, fill in the blank, job, family, relationship, car, shiny things of this world, if this was taken away, would Jesus be enough? That is what self control looks like. And not just self-control but self-control it says it leads to steadfastness that we're able to weather the bad things that when the storms of life come and they hit you hard that we remain steadfast in the promises of god that we remember that those promises that he makes to us that he wants good for us and not wicked, that he's going to bring us to completion, that he cares about us, that he loves us, that we remember that not only does he make the promises, but he's got the power to keep those promises so that when the hardships of life come, we don't get rocked by it. We don't feel like we're drowning by our circumstances, but we think, man, God is so good that he's going to work in our lives to bring this out to work out the plan he he has for us steadfastness leads to godliness to grow in godliness to grow in holiness to hate sin more that we remember that the gospel frees us from the shackles of sin that once we were slaves to sin that we could do only sin but the gospel frees us removes the shackle and says you don't have to sin anymore that you are freed from it. That when temptation comes, you can say, No, that is okay. I love Jesus more than this temptation. That when we sin, it's simply because we decide to worship ourselves instead of God. And these last two it says, Godliness, brother, affection, and love. That as we grow, as we work out, as we become more like Jesus, we should have love for those inside the church as well as those who are outside the church. That faith leads to love. That knowing Jesus leads us to love all people. Now, if you've been in church for a long time or perhaps you're a skeptic of the church you might be thinking, okay, that's all well and good that those who are growing in their faith, grow in their love, well, why don't Christians always love each other? Well, I think the simple answer is we aren't perfect, but Lord willing, we're, we're growing to become more like Jesus. Simply put, we, we are on this road to sanctification, that we As we grow in the gospel, in the scriptures, in our communication with God, in our fasting, in our meditations, that we should be changed to love one another. That we should remember what the gospel does. It says, hey, you were unloving, and yet God says that I love you. And that if God is able to look past your sins and mine to offer us salvation, how much more so should we as Christians be able to? Look past our brothers and sisters who sin against us. That as we grow in the gospel, shouldn't our churches look more united instead of having disunity? In fact, Jesus says that, hey, the, reason, the way that the world will know you are my disciple is by your love for one another. So we need to ask ourselves is, do we really love our brothers and sisters? Do we love those who profess faith? Or do we allow the circumstances of this world to cause us to have disunity and conflict? Are we more focused on ourselves versus the love of God? And that love of God that we've experienced should propel us into loving the world, loving the people of the world. That we see people not as just individuals, but as real people who are going to spend eternity in one of two places. That they will either spend eternity with God, or they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. That when we see people, we see their souls, that we care about them. Working out your salvation looks like growing in your affection for the lost, that you should care where people are going to spend eternity. And how do you see God growing you? Like we think back, we, we look over 2021 and we're like, man, here's all the goals that I accomplished. That you can see the growth, you can mark it. Maybe it's at work, you, you hit certain markers so you got certain bonuses. You should be able to look at your life and, and say, yeah, I'm seeing growth. But growth doesn't happen by accident. The only thing that grows by accident is weeds. No one intends for weeds to grow in their garden, but they just happen to grow. And what Peter is getting at is that, hey, it takes work to cultivate this heart towards a love for God, for, to a love for his word, to a love for his people, to a love to see people come to profess faith in Jesus. It says, you have to work this out. He says, here's the good news of what God did for you, that God has given you all things, and because he's given you all things, you got to do something with it. That whatever your goal is for this next year, that like if you want to see it accomplished, like me running a half marathon, I actually have to get up and run. Otherwise, I'll probably die the first mile in. He says, you have to work this thing out. Strive for it. Keep walking, keep running, keep swimming, keep moving down the railroad towards Christ-likeness. And lastly, we see that we should overflow as a result of what God has done. We'll read verses 8 through 11. It says, So all these qualities, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter here isn't trying to guilt people. He's trying to remind the audience of what God is doing in their lives. That as we walk with God that he fills us with his goodness, that the spirit indwells us, that his goodness should spill over out of us. Like the child who says like, oh, I can fill up my own glass. And as they start to pour, you get real nervous because it gets close to the top and it overflows. That's how our lives should be. But instead of liquid spewing out of us, it should be the sweet smelling aroma of Jesus. That as we go about our daily lives, that instead of a dead, rotting corpse that we were because of our sin, that God raised us from the dead, giving us new life, and that new life should bring about a change, that people look at us and they're like, that person is different. That there's a change about them. That we want those to feel the overflow of our love for Jesus in our lives. And it's easy sometimes to forget. He puts in here, he says, hey, those who forget these things are ineffective. We read that God has, through his divine power, given us all things that pertain to life and knowledge. You have everything that you need. Yet Peter's saying that there's some of you who are ineffective. That you're blind. That you can't see One of the jobs that I previously had was working at UPS loading packaged cars that delivered all those great Christmas presents you ordered. And I had the job of being a supervisor and training people how to do the job. That a new person would be hired and at three in the morning we'd go to the warehouse and be like, okay, here's the cages. You pull out boxes, you scan them, here's where you put it on in the shelf. And I'd work with them for two weeks and I'd tell them, here's everything you need to know to do the job. But what I would find out is it's very easy to identify those who listened and followed what I instructed them to do and those who didn't. The ones who listened stayed at the job. They got the job done. They got the work done. Those who didn't listen were ineffective and bad at their jobs. and They were fired because they couldn't do it. I'm sure if I went to any of your workplaces and I asked your boss, like, hey, how is so-and-so as an employee? I promise you, the one thing you don't want to hear your boss say is ineffective. A bad employee, not good. The same thing should be said about ourselves, that we don't want to be ineffective in our Christian lives. Verse 9 describes what has happened in the person who quits swimming or striving to grow towards Christ's qualities. For whoever lacks these things, the things in verses 5 through 7, is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. The problem with the person who does not strive towards all the fruits of faith is that he is blind in two directions. When he looks to the future, it's all kind of hazy. The promises of God are swallowed up by the worldly longings, I think this is what it means to be short-sighted. That when this person that Peter's describing looks at the past, the forgiveness that made him so excited at first is now forgotten. Like when we take students to youth summer camp and we go and we're out of our normal environments and we sing worship songs all day and we hear preaching all day and we get to hang out. And at the end of the week, students talk about, man, I'm so high on Jesus. I'm going to change all these aspects of my life. Oh, I desire to go into full-time ministry. Oh, I'm going to give up these sinful addictions. And yet two weeks later, they're back to living their old lives they were so excited in the moment but once they were brought back into normal circumstances they forgot that what they loved so much two weeks ago jesus it's not as great as some of the things about them i have very terrible eyesight that if i wasn't wearing my contacts or my glasses i could not read this bible that is in front of me and in fact it's a very large print bible my eyes are so bad That he says, like, hey, they're so short-sighted, they're blind, that they're useless, they're ineffective. They forgot what God did for their lives. That just as in verse 3, the power of godliness flows through the knowledge of God, so in verse 9, blindness to the past and future work of God blocks the power and leaves them limp, unable to continue forward drowning in the waves of life, drifting towards destruction because they cannot see the goodness of Jesus and all that he's offered them. Because they aren't overflowing with the goodness of Christ in their hearts, they've just forgotten. They've moved on. Some shiny thing in the world has distracted them, taken them off the path towards Christ-likeness. And verse number 10 makes it, very clear what is at stake with that kind of blindness and powerlessness and fruitlessness he says therefore my brethren be the more zealous to confirm your call and election the danger described in verses 8 and 9 is not the danger of slipping into the kingdom with no reward it's not hey you get a participation trophy at the end it's the danger of not being saved at all. When Peter says, be zealous to confirm your call and election, he means that our lack of diligence and Christian graces may be a sign that you were never saved, that you knew a whole lot of facts about Jesus, that you knew a lot of things about the church, but when it's all said and done, your faith was not found in Jesus, it was found in information that as you grew up and you grew up in the church that you saw that you know things aren't as good as people say they are or life is just too difficult for this gospel to be true and then you drift away because it's not as good as you thought But those who have faith that there is growth, that there is a certain amount of confidence that God is going to do what it is he says he's going to do. That if you're not seeing fruit in your life, that if you're not overflowing with Christ's likeness, that there's a disconnect. That the person who isn't growing is nearsighted or blind. That they don't see the big picture of what God is doing in us or around us, that we get this gospel amnesia. We forget what the gospel says and what the gospel means for us. That it means that regardless of whatever circumstances we face in this life, that God has set his love and affection on us and it's he who will bring us to the end. Not your good works, not how many times you came to church, not how many times you read the Bible, but God will carry you to the end. We need to remind ourselves of where we have been and what he has done in our lives, that he loved us. Like our hearts, the sinfulness, the blackness, the yuckiness of it, that he looked past it and said, I love you. John 15 paints this picture of what it looks like, that those who abide in Christ bear fruit, that those who stay with me in my vicinity, who love me and cherish me that they will bear fruit that we cultivate it in our hearts so we just need to ask we like God please give me fruit that I can see give me fruit that other people can see in my heart because I am a follower I desire to follow you holy if you do you'll bloom and blossom But Jesus also says in John 15 that those trees that do not bear fruit, that are barren, will be cast aside and burned. That we are to make every effort to cultivate a life of faith. That we are proving our calling. That our actions should say, my life is different because of the gospel. And that we can have all confidence in him and in the future. And that's part of the beauty of us not earning our salvation. Because we didn't do anything to earn it, it means we can't do anything to lose our salvation because it's all on God. He did the work, not us. The point of verses 5 through 15 is that we should earnestly confirm our call and election by making every effort to advance in the qualities of Christ. Not because it's us who adds to our salvation, but because of what God has done for us, it brings about certain changes in our life. So what does this mean? What is our application for this morning's sermon? I think it's this. Are you making every effort towards moral excellence? Are you making every effort to increase your knowledge of God's character and his will? Are you making every effort to strengthen your power of self control? Are you making every effort to enlarge your capacity for patience? To cultivate goodness, to develop a heart for God? To grow warm in your affection for fellow believers? Are you making every effort to stir up your love for the person who you dislike the most? If these things are in you and increasing, verse 8 says, you will not be fruitless. It says that you will not stumble, verse 10. That you will enter into the eternal kingdom of Christ, verse 11. But he gives a warning. But if these things are not your earnest concern, if you're not desiring to grow, if you're not asking God to help you, if you are not growing he says, then it's because you've shut your eyes to the beauty of God's promises. That you've forgotten the humble exhilaration to be forgiven of your sins. You forgot what it was like to have your burden and weight of sin removed from you. That you've just given up. Therefore, the word of God warns us against laziness and in our faith, and drifting away from Christ, our only hope. That no one drifts intentionally. That if we were to go outside and I was to have you close your eyes and start walking, eventually you would start slowly turning. That you intended to walk forward, but because you're blind, you can't see, you go off the path. That it's not an overnight decision, but it's a slow and steady drifting away. And those who drift away never experience the true faith and the true life that the gospel offers. The word, the Bible, the scriptures encourage us. There's a reason it uses this like wartime language often. It encourages us to fight the good fight of faith and hold on to eternal life. First Timothy six twelve and nineteen to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with perseverance to the race that is before us, Hebrews twelve one, to press towards the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians three fourteen to advance and grow and go forward in our virtue and knowledge, self-control and patience and godliness, and brotherly affection and love. First Peter one five through seven. And in this way, to reassure our hearts and make our confidence firm that we are indeed called to share in God's glory and his excellence. 2 Peter 1, 10 through 3, that, hey, you want to know what it's like to be a disciple? You want to know if you're following after Jesus? Look at the fruit. And it's not there. Ask God for it. To keep persevering because this is the promise of God. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, riches that we cannot even imagine if we persevere in the faith.